You're listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast, discussing all aspects of precision and long-range rifle shooting. This episode is brought to you by Projectile Warehouse. Find your perfect projectile. And now, over to your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Precision Shooting Podcast. This is episode number 30. My name's Rusty and uh, with me tonight are the regulars. Over there is Andrew. How you doing, Rusty? Good. And over there is Greg. G'day, Rusty. How you going? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. How's your week's been, guys? Busy, unfortunately, not yeah. with shooting, with work only. So Just life? Yeah, lots of it. Yeah, very good. Yeah. No, I got a bit of shooting in with yourself, Rusty, no, we on did, the weekend. We? We, um, well, I'll let you describe what we got up to, but it oh, was a, we, we an tried. interesting... <laughs> I'll, I'll be fair, I was not well, and I actually don't remember a huge amount of it. It's a fair blur. So yeah, You were pretty crook. Made me feel pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> pretty fit. Um, we, we tried a different, co- uh, new style of competition that we'd sort of come up with, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll get around to getting the feedback from all the guys, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about it um, soon. Yeah. yeah, but lots of rounds down range, which is great. Um, I got to... Have a bit of a shot of my six by forty seven. Yeah. So I uh, took that. What was the uh, seven forty one? Took it out to seven eighty six. Seven eighty six. Yep. Sorry. So I took that out, and um, yeah, uh, credit to those magneto speeds. Like I, I did three rounds for a magneto speed. Put that straight into my kestrel, and then hit center. Yeah. Elevation wise, hit center on that first yeah, right. round. Well, actually, I hit dead center. Yep. With. Um, uh, Dan, who was there shooting, Dan from out north, yep. uh, his wind call put me right on dead center. Well, so not first round. So, yeah, no, he's a very impressive wind caller, I've got to admit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah very good. Well, um, yeah, I shot what we needed to and then went home. I was not, not doing well. Still still recovering. Um, we, we must apologize. We did a, um, a podcast a couple of weeks ago and um, some technical glitch, it didn't record Andrew's voice. Uh, bar the first minute and a half. Oh, no great loss there, really. I was about to say, people were probably quite happy with that. <laughs> you know, we might we might put it up anyway and just have these blank g- gaps. <laughs> A little bit disjointed, but... <laughs> <laughs> no real technical knowledge in there, just, just me and Greg paying each other out, probably. Yeah, pretty much. Actually, yeah, probably yeah, didn't sound too bad off. then. Yeah, so we we um, had to unfortunately bin that one, and we couldn't re-record it um, quickly. So we will cover the topic. That was actually on the, uh, the Brian Litz book, um, we will come back to that topic and, and cover that another another episode. But we needed to get onto some questions from listeners, um, which have been banking up because um, guys are pretty uh, keen to win a win themselves a load ride kit from Precision Rifle Products. So, but before we start that, any any oh, well, Greg's obviously got some new gear. Um, always does. Anything, Greg, that you uh, want to discuss, or is that a look of no? I I didn't well, this week. No, I, I did buy something new. <laughs> Because, you know, it's it's tradition now to buy something, one one thing per podcast. That's it. Now, I bought a, um, and, and my, my um, what's the Hornady powder thrower? The electronic the auto one? charge. The auto charge, yeah. It's a bit worn out. So, um, rather than go out and buy a $600 sort of RBCS uh, charge master, I just went and bought a Gem, Gem Pro scale, which measures to um, 0.2 of a grain. So I'll run that, like, yeah, it's going to take a bit longer. I'll basically use my Hornady as a powder thrower and then trickle into that scale. But yep. I'll, I'll play along with that for a while, just a cheap option to keep me up and running, keep my loads, uh, my my powder charges accurate. I think you meant point 
0.02 of a grain there. What did yeah. I say? You said yeah. 0.2. Yeah. Thank you. 0.02. I, was, I, was thinking I was wondering why you guys were looking at me real weird what? with squinted eyes. Why? And why did you buy yourself that? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, that would have point, been a bad buy. <laughs> 0.02. No, thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, 0.02. <laughs> that makes heaps so, more sense. Makes a lot of sense. So, <laughs> yeah, waiting for that to be delivered. So, that's my latest acquisition. Yeah, nice. Very point good. two can make a lot of difference, especially if it's in inches yeah, and twist rates. I'd so. actually be going backwards <laughs> from what I was doing before, so that wouldn't help much. I think Greg missed that one, but everyone listening got it. Excellent. All right, so on to the uh, on to the questions. Um, Andrew, do you want to? I know this one's this one's directed at me, so I guess I'll ask. That's good. Um, this is, comes from Stephen. Uh, hey mate, got a few questions about your Ruger Precision Rifle. Take it if you stretch its legs a bit. Uh, how far can you get it reliably with the break in? With the brake on it, sorry, with the brake on it, how's the recoil? Can you keep targets between shots and in quick succession? What do you think of the trigger? Would you recommend one or would you get a $2,000 custom rifle made if you did it again? Well, you guys you guys have all shot the Ruger? No, Correct? I haven't. I've... No, I've handled it. I haven't shot oh, it. Oh, okay. Yeah, same. I've what a selfish prick I am. All right. Well, next time, uh, next time you guys will definitely have a go. What do you think of it in general? Well, just from handling it, it feels good. <laughs> It, it's heavier than I thought it would be, but it's solid. Feels feels yep. well made. Uh, certainly for the price point, it, it seems like a, a lot of gun. Yeah. Um, just in relation to the price point on that that question there, you, you won't really get a two thousand dollar custom rifle made at all. No. Basically. So it's... from that point of view, it's a very good buy. Yeah, I guess for well, two thousand dollars spent on on a gun like if you're going to buy a ticker or a Remington or a Howard or something like that, two grand's not. Yeah, you know, if you're going to start with a heavy barrel, you're not going to get a huge amount more um, to, for that two grand. No, you you won't even get a you know a good aftermarket stock. No, you know, not really. And, and come in at the budget. No, so. no. I mean, you could go with a Howard, but there's a question on that a bit later. In terms of stretching it out, it's comfortable and consistent out to a thousand meters. Um, I've taken it to twelve hundred, and it does that fairly well. But I haven't spent the time uh, there. Um, the brake that I've put on there is a, a APA little bastard, and um, it is uh, really um, good. But even before putting that brake on, comfortably watch your shots out. Yeah, beyond four hundred meters, uh, with the brake you can watch them sort of really quite close in um, quite easily. So a good little upgrade on that one, um, and yeah, can get shots off very quickly. We did a thousand thousand meter um, double tap where you shoot one and then cycle through and shoot again. Got to get the second round off before the first one hits. Managed to do that, which was uh, first time I've done that, and um, nice and challenging. Um, trigger on it, I not I never found a factory trigger I like, um, so. Um, but I just saw that Chimney are releasing a um, uh, aftermarket replacement, so I'd probably end up putting something like that on there if it was gonna go, I was going to shoot a huge amount. Um, that was about all the questions, I reckon. So, yeah, I think in summary, they're, they're good for their dollars, uh, really good for their dollars, and you, you probably need to spend a reasonable amount more to get something that's on, on par with it. Although, now starting to see more and more sort of enter that market space as well. So I know Savage are releasing something in that sort of uh, area and Ticker are doing a similar style, but it'll be more expensive. I'm not sure, though, that uh, those <coughs> other manufacturers are using you know a system that's sort of, I guess, as versatile in, in the magazine sort of system. Mm. And, you know, they're, they're modular and they're, they're that chassis kind of design, but I don't think that the others generally have that sort of adaptability that... 
No, true. The the Ruger has. So I guess yeah. time will tell. But yeah, absolutely, they'll be hard hard one to knock off. They certainly have set the benchmark for that sort of price bracket. Hmm. Um, Andrew, you want to read out that next one? Okay, we just got a question here from Tim. It says, hi guys, I've got a question for the podcast. I'm wanting to get into practical rifle series. I've been hunting for a while with my 338 lap improved at distance and figure the matches would be a good way to hone my skills for long range hunting. My question is about a new rifle I've seen that cleavers have. So how a 308 varmint barrel in an MDT HS3 stock. Also, I like the look of the Tika varmint in 260 rem in a KRG X-ray chassis. Which one would you guys go for? I'm leaning towards the Hauer because it's about $600 cheaper. Um, but if it's not going to be accurate enough, then I won't bother with it. Thanks, guys. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Cool. Thoughts, Greg? Yeah, well, look, personally, I'd probably lean towards a, like, just straight off the bat, I'd probably lean towards a 260 if ballistically you're looking for something a little bit better. Um the, the the 308 though I, I can't see one being like less accurate than the other but um, I think ballistically one has an advantage over the other um, for that type of shooting especially PRS style shooting um, I, I I don't see any harm in going for the 308 over the 260 um, yeah you, you, you might be able to minimise your uh, well maximise your potential chance of hitting with the 260 because you might just have that little bit um, more forgiving with your wind calls because you've got better ballistics. But uh, look, either choice, if you're budget restricted, um, I don't think you, you're going too far wrong with the 308. Um, but, you know, if you put the ballistics head-to-head, if I, if I come back to that, the 260's probably just got a, a, a bit of a, a foot up on the 308. But your thoughts, guys? I'd, you're just on that. I mean, given that um, he's looking at this rifle as a basically just practice for you know bettering his field hunting skills the 308 could even be a better option in that yes it may not be as great in the wind but it makes you be better at your wind calls so oh definitely um um, from a hunting perspective that could be an option and i certainly know of you know one of the you know guys that um, is sort of quite involved with with impact dynamics and he does a lot of shooting you know he's uh you know quite a fan of the howler heavy barreled and you know extremely accurate so i don't think either way you're going to lose out in accuracy mm. like the the Howers have got a very good reputation there as well so mm. i guess it would probably be beneficial if you could actually go in and and handle one because feel and how you like the feel of the rifle and how it feels when you shoulder it and that sort of thing the ergonomics of it are probably going to be the biggest yeah that's a good difference point. and mm. you're not going to be able to determine that just by looking at a picture of it mm. um What's your thoughts, Rusty? Yeah, I, um, a little bit more generic advice I always ask when people are asking about 308 or 260 and that sort of gear. My first question is, do they reload? I'm assuming Tim does because he's running a 338 lap improved. So in his situation, it's a, a moot point. But for those who are listening and perhaps are considering the same question, um, if you're reloading, then there's not a huge difference in your prices. Um, I generally pay a little bit more for, for brass for 260, for 260 headstand brass. But if you're not reloading, you definitely want to probably head down the 308 um, path because the, um, the the price of ammo is probably a showstopper. For me, um, the, the big difference there is the other guys have said, the Hauer and the Tickers um, are, are very similar. They both shoot really well and you can you know, tweak them up a bit if you need to and, and have seen, uh, seen many examples of both that shoot excellent. Um, I'm not a... 
I'm not a fan of that HS3 stock. Um, I know guys who have them, they love them, um, and they shoot well with them, but I just personally doesn't appeal to me. Um, I quite like that um, KG, and I feel much more comfortable with that one, so I'd I'd sort of lean towards that because if I can get nice and solid and comfortable with a gun that sort of fits me, um, I'll probably shoot better, whether it is a 308, 260 or either. Yeah, having said that, we're probably going to further confuse the issue here, but um, <laughs> you're, you're I'm not a fan of the, the, the KRG stock ergonomically, Yep. but having said that, guys that I know have, have got them and have used them, love them, so it's a personal mm. issue, I guess. Yeah, it probably just goes back to your point of get in there and, if you can, and try and pick one of these things up and yeah. look, look, feel, touch, just see what suits you in terms of, uh, you know, feel and ergonomics and, and uh, you know, Good fit is pretty important. Um, Given that Tim's in Melbourne and Cleavers is in Queensland, it could be a little difficult. But um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, down a range, someone might have. I mean, those mm. HS3s are pretty popular. Um, and so someone's probably got them. They're really good for their price. That's probably the big thing with them. For their price, they're a, an excellent option. Cool. All right. Well, uh, Tim, hopefully that's helped or hindered um, either way. Uh all right, now Greg doesn't want to. Um, Greg's not paid enough to um, to read questions out, so um, so I'll, I guess I've got the next one. Um, this one relates to trigger pull. Hey guys, uh, thanks for reading out my question about the Burris Eliminator scope. Okay, so Kyle must have emailed us before. That's right, I do remember that. Uh, found your advice helpful, um, and it would be sufficient for spotlighting needs. Um, he still wants to win a pack. So his question for this one is, what trigger pull pounds do you guys prefer with an aftermarket trigger? Say for bench rest or spotlighting, I think it's one of the key points to shooting well. No doubt you would agree and understand we all prefer different trigger pull weights. Is there a favourite number between you all or you all different types? Cheers, Kai. Ooh. I'll let you fire away, Greg. Yeah, well, I'll fire away. I'm mainly a hunting sort of guy, right? So I... <laughs> I do tend to run a heavier trigger than than a lot of the guys that uh, do a lot more longer range stuff. Um, but I've got to say, as time is going on, I'm getting lighter and lighter. Um, you should eat more, mate. Yeah. Well, I wish I was getting lighter in that department, but I'm not. Um, but yeah, I, you know, and and I keep adjusting my trigger down. I think going, you know, I could probably go a little bit lighter within within a safe region. But yeah, I'm definitely starting to head down towards the light stuff, but I do like to have a slightly heavier trigger when I'm like running through the bush, just in case I go down, head over heels. Um, I like to make sure that she's not going to go off and we're in a safe region, but that's me. Just, um, he mentions here, uh, where were we? Uh, say bench rest or spotlighting. I think that's two very, very different types of shooting. Mm. I've had a rifle set up not for close range bench rest, but a you know single shot six two eight four, you know, on a stolly action and it was pretty much a dedicated target rifle. Yep. And I had a two ounce trigger in that. Mm-hmm. There's no way in the world I would have a two ounce trigger on a spotlighting gun just from the fact that, you know, how often is it when you're out in the back of a ute, you're cold, your fingers get well, a bit numb, you wouldn't feel a two ounce trigger. Yeah. So in, in, in regards to actual poundage weights and trigger pulls, I, I would Personally, I like light triggers on the long-range stuff. When I say light, I mean under a pound. Um, but I wouldn't go down to, you know, under sort of six ounces or so. A lot of people wouldn't even go anywhere near that light. No, it's it's pretty common to be sitting around sort of two pound, two and a half pound. Seems to be fairly standard. Um, one thing that he does say in there that... Um, 
Oh, I'll just find it here. Um, he says that he thinks it's one of the key points to shooting well. And I, I'm not necessarily... Um, I think that sometimes guys will go for a lighter trigger pull to um, offset the fact that they can't handle a trigger very well, if that makes sense. Yeah, I've certainly seen guys shoot very accurately with not 10-pound triggers, but you know, certainly with mm. two- to three-pound triggers, which are not super light. Yep. So... I think if you're going with a light trigger to improve your shooting, it's probably not the best way to go about it. You got if you've got other you know, technique issues that yep. need to be addressed rather than trigger weight. Yeah, yeah, um, to to some degree, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but anyway, um, back onto his actual question. I run uh, the the gun I was using on the weekend. I do remember which gun I used. Um, that had a two ounce trigger. Um, and I have to uh, t- tell you what I have to make sure I know which gun I'm using because if um, if I don't, there's a good chance I'll set that one off. So usually when I pull that gun out, I um, I cycle it a few times, dry fire it a few times, make sure I'm, I'm back on that trigger. All my other guns, um, in terms of long range guns, bar the Ruger, are pretty much set at about eight ounce. Um, so like yourself, Andrew, uh, half under a pound, pound. half yeah. a pound or so. Yeah, I mean, it. it I think the. The, the mention of spotlighting in there, yep. I you know I've had rifles set up specifically for spotlighting, and triggers on those will be heavier. Yep. Sort of between a pound and a pound and a half, because I, th- I sort of find if you've got cold fingers on a cold night, you lose a lot of sensation in your fingers. Sure. Um, so yep. having a little bit more weight to pull there is yep. beneficial, I think. And you know I've certainly, you know, when you're spotlighting, you're not shooting extreme range. Sort of four to five hundred meters is. Yeah. Getting towards the max for most applications. Yeah. So yeah, sure. you know, if you've got a a quarter minute variation due to your trigger pull, it's not going to cause you to miss your target. No. So. I um, yeah, my um, was my uh, walk around hunting rifles are usually a fairly sort of, sort of heavier trigger to a two and a half pound, um, because I haven't found the need to to really lighten it off, um. And the but I did put one of those two ounce triggers on my three throughout lap um, for a okay. period of time and took it off because what I found is I couldn't get a good feel on it given the recoil that was about to come. I wanted to yeah. you know nice firm grip on the gun and it wouldn't it wouldn't sort of respond to that too well. Mm. Whereas with the lighter gun, the, the gun that I mentioned was the twenty two br, and that's you know not a gun that you have to brace significantly for. It's a really heavy gun as well, so. Mm-hmm. I don't have to sort of take up the trigger quite so much or well, feel much that I need to. Much the same as, you know, Bentrest, you know, short-range Bentrest rifles. They're, they're heavy guns. Yep. They recoil in a straight line. They're on bags. Most guys shoot them free recoil, which means they don't actually hold the gun at all. They're not exerting any influence on it other than touching the trigger. Yep. So it's the recoil is not an issue, but it is on, you know, a lot of, a lot of rifles, long-range sort of field tactical type rifles, so different set of considerations. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Kai, hopefully we've answered that question. Um, it's good to have a return customer. Got yeah. a <laughs> okay. Um, Craig, you, you don't want to read a question? No? Oh, I can give it a crack. Give it a go? All right. Regarding the rangefinder for rabbits at 800 metres, perhaps a weapon-mounted rangefinder like a Silence Co. Radius might be the key. As I understand it, it's good to 1,000 yards, but the real advantage is the optics as far as superior so you can actually spot and range more accurately since you are using your rifle scope as the optic 
This could be a good alternative for the scopes with integrated range finding and would allow shopping. I think he means swapping. He means he means what? Swapping. Swapping. Yeah. Okay. From rifle to rifle. That's from Jacob. Yeah, and I don't have my glasses. All right. <laughs> I mean, Greg's still going through school at the moment. <laughs> um, I guess, sort of, in reply to that, having not used one of the Silencer Co. units, it's probably a little hard to make comment on it. Yeah, I think the theory's good. Um, having said that, I, I you know I haven't looked up the um, the specs on the on the laser itself. Yeah, as far as what that- the beam divergence is. In that Lutz book, they rated really well. Uh, they, yeah. they, there was two two options in the the weapons mounted sort of stuff. One of them um, rated really highly up there with the um, Victronics. As far as uh, beam divergence and that sort uh, of thing. In, in well, in terms of performance, oh. so yeah, yep. that that'd be part of it, I guess. Um, but in terms of yeah, the, the theory sounds good. Just not had any experience with one. Mm, same. So maybe you should buy us a couple, Greg. And yeah, well, next week, huh? We have to have Actually, something. God knows what they're worth. Probably well, scary worth. Yeah, I mean, good good rangefinders are. But I yeah, mean, true. You know, like I ranging rabbits at eight hundred meters with the Vectronics the way I've got it set up, it's it's no no deal at all. It's it's easy. Yeah. Um, mm. You just have to run a tripod or something, wouldn't you? There's just yeah, but the reality is you're not going to be able to range a rabbit at eight hundred meters using an unrested platform yeah, of right. any sort. Yeah. So. Yes, true. Yeah, that's a, a, a good point, Jacob. I'm not sure it's a question. We'll take it as a comment, hey? Um, but yeah, no, it certainly would be really good if someone's actually got experience with that sort of stuff to let us know because we haven't haven't used such a beast. Very good. All right, Andrew, I reckon we're on to you. It does say, hey, Rusty, but... Yeah, well, you can, you can ask me a question. <laughs> okay, so Hamish asks us, I'm in the process of learning mill calculations and I have one scope that is all mill mill and the rest are mill MOA. Am I correct in my homework that one quarter MOA click is equal to 0.073 mils? E.g. on a mill mill scope 10 clicks equals one mil. On a mill slash MOA 13 clicks equals 0.949 mils. I know it's messy numbers but it seems like a workable compromise until I can afford to replace my Zeiss Conquest with MilDot and MOA turrets. Uh, would be a shame not to use a fairly good scope properly. The old uh, lesson learnt here, isn't it? The Mil and MOA mix on the scope. Um, so if you are in the market for buying a scope, um, first thing is buy one with turrets and reticles that match. doesn't matter whether you go Mil or MOA, work that out, but make sure they match. Well, certainly if you've got a, a reticle which you're going to be using with, with graduations on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, which you know, he says here is uh, a mill dot reticle. Yeah, but so anyway, to answer Hamish's question, I guess, um, y- your calculations are pretty uh, close enough. Um, I think Greg, Greg worked it out before and it was 0.005, or 0.004 within, uh, within what, the numbers we had here. So um, well, well within a click. Oh, well under a click, yeah. Mm. So um, no dramas there. But I guess the um, the application, you, you've got to try and work out whether or not you can 
use your scoping in a way where you don't you don't have to make that allowance for. Yeah, I think you know I said the maths is is correct, but you got to look at the application as to you can pretty quickly confuse the matter hmm. if you're trying to do these complex you know three or four decimal point conversions in the field. You know, it, often you don't have that time. Um, yeah, I'll let you guys ask. Well give your opinions on what you think because I've, I've got an opinion on this but I'd be interested to hear what you've got to say Greg personally for me if I had a mixed scope set up like that I'd you know I'd obviously take advantage of a um, of a ballistic calculator you know you can set your scope for either be MOA clicks or mil clicks um, you know put in your distance true it all up and and you just dial up for whatever distance you're shooting um, yeah, and, and you know that that would get the scope functional immediately, as long as you you know are happy just to do that basic um, use of a calculator. Now, if you're going to break it down to calculations, and I don't do a lot of calculations in the field, I just use the ballistic calculator in most cases. Um, so yeah, I, I would just align my ballistic calculator appropriately for the scope I was using. Yep. You know. I yeah, pretty much the same. I if I had a had a scope exactly as he specifies here, pretty much I wouldn't use the reticle for any holding. That's right. Um I and, would dial everything and Yeah. And the other thing he doesn't actually specify whether it's first focal plane. It's not. So, no, his eyes kind of first aren't. Yeah. So he'd have to be on a particular uh zoom. I'm I'm not sure how they mark that up, the the calibrated zoom for the reticule. Yeah, um, probably at the top power. Yeah, it's either top or it'll be marked in red or something. It's marked like that. on the on the yeah on the scope itself. But yep. yeah, again, it's it's sort of a, a mute point because if you know often if you're using the reticle to hold, that's where the real yeah. advantage of the first focal plane comes in. So, and just to reinforce that, you know, I bought a mixed scope in in my early days. And I still use because it it's a good scope, tracks well, but it's um it's inches per hundred yards with a mil reticule, so. It, it it just hurts my head just thinking about it. So I, I, the, the reticule side of things, I, I just don't use. I, do, I just put in, well, I did have inches per 100 yards in my ballistic calculator. I range to my target. I dial up. I shoot. So Yeah. So basically, I would ignore the reticle as far as anything other than the center of it as the point of aim and dial everything because you could have, whether he uses a, a, you know, an electronic device, a phone, a tablet, whatever, Kestrel, in the field, or whether you have a you know a slightly less precise but have a pre-printed drop chart, if you've got MOA clicks, you have your drop chart printed out in MOA clicks, or if you're using a PDA or whatever, you have the readout in MOA clicks, and you just dial everything. Cool. So um, I've got a lot, slightly different take on it, I guess. Um, with um with with this situation, what we don't know is his application, what he's using it for. So. Um, he, if we're running in the field, what you guys have said is, is spot on in terms of we want to keep it somewhat simple, we want to keep it fairly basics in terms of the maths. Now, Hamish has actually sent through also, um, subsequent to this email, a chart he created that, that um, had um, the mill and then MOA, um, which charted it all down, which was you know, kind okay. of cool to see. Yeah. Obviously, I'm guessing he's numbers guy, so he likes that side of things. Yeah. That's awesome. Good That's way good. to get an understanding. Yeah. It's good stuff. Good yeah. thing to do. But we still don't quite know exactly what the application is for this mm. setup. So you can go about it in, in trying to keep those numbers real basic, real easy, which is, you know, to be able to just run 
run what your turrets say or run just what your reticle says um, and dial or hold, um, use one or the other. The other option is if you are running AB, particularly if you've got a little more time, you can actually set your um, your firing screen up with, you can run your elevation in MOA and run your windage in mil. So you can have you know the two different pieces of information come back to you. So if you are, it's probably more common to hold wind and to dial mm. elevation. Mm. And so you can still, and you know, we're assuming just a standard mil dot reticle, but perhaps it could be more complicated. Um, and he could still use his reticle for windage hold, and his an AB would tell him in mil what that that would be. Yeah. And he could still dial it in MOA. Um, yeah. So yeah. The only solution is at the calibrated zoom, I guess. Oh yeah, of course. With yeah, the second being focus, second plane, focus plane. Being aware of that. Yeah. yeah, I guess the the only issue I would see with that would be besides the making sure you're on the right power is. Um, mm. Often, like a mil dot reticle, you don't have fine graduations. You've got full mils. Yeah. Which, if you're trying to shoot a small target at extended range, you're going to be holding in thin air. Not in thin air. You'll be holding on a line. But Absolutely. You yeah. won't have a, a, a designated point to hold on. So. Yeah. No, I, I'm not disagreeing. That's why I said if the, if the mil dot was perhaps more complicated, we don't know yeah. exactly what it is. Um, but, yeah, if you wanted to use that... That would be a good way to be able to apply it without trying to take that the the additional calculations out of it. Yep. Cool. Um, Hamish asked another question. So this one comes back to oh, it's another Ruger precision rifle question. Um, he's got one in six point five Creedmoor with a Bushnell Elite Tactical ERS six to twenty four mil mil. That must be his mil mil scope. Uh, first focal plane. Um, being held by some rings, uh, 1.5 inch high rings, and have a large offset in the windage, 3.2 mil to the left, and nearly 9 mil to the right. Um, not sure what to do at zero to 100 meters. It's spot on out to 500 without touching wind when the wind is okay. Going to try turning each mount around to see what happens. Suggested to swap front to back, but I don't think this will make any differences at straight compared to what the uh, compared to the barrel due to it tracking out to 500. Not sure what to do. Could be a couple of things. Yep. Um, it could be issue with the scope itself as far as where its mechanical centre lies in relation to its optical sort of, you know, where it's sitting. Mm. Um, you know, obviously a good scope will be if it's if you've got a perfectly true barrel to your receiver, you should have very little variation. It should be fairly close to the centre of the mechanical adjustment. Um, I guess it could also be... The um, the Rugers have got the rail, the full-length rail on the top, haven't they, Rusty? Yeah, that's part of the chassis, yep. Yeah, I mean, there's, there is a possibility that, that that is not in perfect alignment with where the barrel is pointing, basically. Every possibility that could be the case. Yeah, and that's relatively common on factory guns. Um, having, well, I haven't used the Ruger yet, but Rusty probably uh, sort of be more qualified to comment there. And I know there were certainly... Some people complaining the barrels weren't sitting straight in the in the handguard or some of the earlier ones. Yeah, that was a fairly common complaint. Um, but yeah, look, at the, there is a possible that it could be gun um, in terms of where the the rail is sitting. Um, obviously, in a normal normal gun, you just take the rail off and you'd be able to measure those where those holes are and if that was offset. Um, certainly, seen plenty of guns that are not straight in that regard. I'm sure you have as well, Andrew. Yeah, and I mean it can also be. You know, with with a conventional type of you know bolt action, you can have a barrel that's not actually 
you know, the, the, the mounting holes could be perfectly, you know, square and true on the receiver, but uh, where the barrel is actually pointing, you know, it's not necessarily going to be coming out perfect, perfectly straight from the receiver. It can actually be on a slight angle. Now, that will create that exact issue as well, so. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, there's lots of various solutions. The, the other thing is, um, uh, yeah, there's lots of various solutions you could be, your rings could be offset a little bit. Um, your scope could have a problem, but I guess you've got to work out how much, um, how often you're going to need to dial 3.2 mil um, of wind. You know whether it's going to have a, a significant effect on what you're actually doing. Yeah, I mean, just in uh, back to his point about changing the rings around, I, I really don't think that's going to give you a noticeable change. Um, in terms of front to back, or in terms of tw- uh, what does he say, turning them around? Either. Yep. I, I, I don't think you're going to get a, ch- a big change there. Um, certainly not. Well, you know, you're talking about a six mil difference between, you know, adjustment you got from one side to the other. I don't think that's going to be made up by the rings. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I would imagine it lies with where the rail, the orientation of the rail versus the orientation of the barrel, I think is probably the issue here. Yeah, most likely. Yeah, I know um, with my old BSA, I actually had an offset issue, but mine was probably a bit more extreme. I'd nowhere near the adjustment left that um, that, that Hamish has. He's got 3.2 mil to play with, whereas I had only like sort of five, six clicks before I hit the edge. Yeah. Now, when I took it into the gunsmith, he, he he basically held the rifle side on and looked down the, the tube of the scope and tried to align the edge of the tube with the edge of the rail. And you could see straight away that the scope was offset to the rail. So straight away indicated, in my case, yeah. uh, there was a rings issue. So, um, yeah, obviously, as Andrew's saying, there's, there's quite a few different things that can cause a problem. But I'm sort of looking at 3.2 mil, and I don't know about you guys, but that's still a fair bit. Yeah. It's a fair bit to play with. Especially um, if if he's going to be holding it all for wind, or if you hold yeah reasonable amount, yeah. Well, so I mean, yeah, a lot of guys hold hold all the wind. Yep. Uh, this particular scope would first focal plane. It is. He doesn't say what reticle, but I would imagine it's probably a milled up. Yeah, I've G2. probably got one more for you. Um, yep. On this particular topic, and you guys have had a lot to do with scopes in the past, so I've had it said to me before that if you are over one edge it actually can affect your horizontal range because you're not in the center. Um, basically described to me is that, you know, you've sort of got your whole circular part of your scope and if your full horizontal range is in the center, but when you get out to the side, you're sort of on the edge of the, I guess, circle, if you like, so you're limiting yep. your range. Now, I don't know what level of truth is in that because I don't know much about the optic side of things, but... Yeah. Is it worth, from that point of view, if he's really looking to reach out to make sure he gets full potential out of his his horizontal, uh, sorry, his uh, vertical um, range? I've never actually tested it, but it would be quite easy for him to do. I mean, it would from his zero position, you could wind to the top or the bottom of your your elevation adjustment mm. range, mm. record your your figure in 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 uh, mils or clicks or whatever you want to record it in and go all the way to the edge of your you know, your windage adjustment and, mm. and then go up and see what you what difference you got. Yeah. It's uh, all it's, yeah, it's always ideal to be central. 
Yeah, um, yeah the closer sure. you are to your to mechanical the, centre, the better. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and But he has he said that he's got out to 500 comfortably and it's been no dramas at all. Yeah. Um, so it's obviously not having a, a big effect there. 3.2 isn't isn't sitting on the edge. Um, if you had 0.2, mm. yeah, you'd be pretty concerned. Mm. Um, and it will come back to the, the quality of the scope as well. Um, yep. So, yeah, if, if you can get that central, that would be the best part to do. It's certainly worth looking into. Um, but, yeah, it, it um, it's probably whether or not you'd spend huge amounts of time, you wouldn't necessarily need it perfectly centre either. Yeah. I, I mean, I would suggest... Uh, yeah, use the rifle at the maximum range you sort of you're intending to to use it, and see if it becomes an issue for you. Yeah, uh, you know if he wants to shoot it to to a thousand meters, we'll we'll do it on a windy day and and see what kind of mm. figures you're you you know you're requiring to. Or a bit of hit. a box test sort of equivalent, something like that. A tool target test wouldn't hurt. Yeah, tool target yeah. test. Sorry. Yeah, particularly with that, that'll that'll show you if you're going off. Yep. With a bubble level, make sure you got a bubble level on there. Yeah, all right, cool. I think we might have avoided answering that one. Um, <laughs> guys, this ended up being quite a long podcast, so we're going to take a break there and uh, finish this episode off, and we'll be back next week with uh, part two. Thanks for listening to the Precision Shooting Podcast. To continue the discussion, check out our Facebook page. And for more information, head to our website, www.precisionshootingpodcast.com.au. This episode was brought to you by Projectile Warehouse. Find your perfect projectile.